What is good, everybody? Yo, welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast, where we help real people with real problems know the real God. Hey, if you enjoy this message, share this with your friends because the gospel is not meant to be kept to ourselves. And there is a link down below if you would like to give. Your gifts really do help this podcast reach more people all around the world. I hope you enjoy this message. Hello, everybody all across the globe. Yo, look, if you're here right now listening to this podcast, you are in for a good one because, look, we're making progress in Romans 12, all right? We're not moving a verse by verse today like we did last episode. We getting in to some good stuff. And if you missed last episode, what I explained about Romans 12 and for the rest of the letter to the Romans is that Paul's really getting into the application of the theology that he laid the foundation for in the first 11 chapters. Paul's really getting into how do we actually apply this now? Like all of this theology that we learned, it's great, right? It's great to talk about, debate about all that stuff, but what do we do with it? Like what is the actual purpose of all of this? And this is what Paul gets into for these last four chapters in his letter to the Roman people. And and what Paul hits on through these next four or five verses that we're going to be covering today, is the fact that the body of Christ is made up of diverse individuals who come together under one Savior. This diversity includes different races, different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures, male and female, slave and free— And I'm not just talking about the way our world is today, because sometimes we think that um, our world today is far more diverse and we're far more inclusive than, you know, people of the past. But all of those diverse qualities that I just mentioned actually applied to the Roman people that Paul was talking to. He's speaking to a diverse church of Jew and Gentile, different race, different ethnicities, different cultures. They speak different languages. Uh, They have different religious backgrounds. They are male and female. Some of them were slaves and some of them are now free. It really is a diverse group of people that Paul is talking to. And this group of people, Paul called to in the first verse of chapter 12, to be one living sacrifice. And the question I have today is, how do we do that? How do we go about that? Well, let's read through. We're going to go through verses 2 through 5 today. Let's see what Paul is saying and see if we can figure out how we can all come to be one living sacrifice. So let's read through this. I'm going to read verse 1 again just so we have the additional context. We're going through verse 1 through 5. I'm reading from the ESV, but if y'all like reading from another translation, go ahead and whip it out. It'll be just fine. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
All right, so like we always do, we're going to go verse by verse and break this down and see if we can figure out what Paul is trying to tell us. So once again, verse 2, he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? Okay, so a quick flashback to verse 1. Last week we talked about it. Paul calls the Roman church to offer themselves as one living sacrifice to God. All the various individuals within that body, he's calling them all to offer their individual bodies as one singular sacrifice to God. And this implies a daily action of giving yourself to God in order to outwardly show your inward transformation through Christ, but not just on an individual level, on a communal level, in a larger sense. Your role as a living sacrifice is to not only make yourself look good, but do everything within your power to help the full body of Christ be a holy and acceptable sacrifice. Now, what Paul does is he gives us some applications to this idea in the next few verses. And the question that it raises that we're supposed to be asking while reading this is, okay, Paul, so how do we offer our bodies as a sacrifice? Like, what are some practical things that we can do? And Paul answers this in verse 2, and he says, don't be conformed to this world. Like, that's, that's the first step. And as I think about this, this has some interesting implications. Because remember, Paul is speaking to the collective church, not to individuals per se. He's calling the whole church to use their bodies as one sacrifice. And this plays out by the church conforming to Jesus' lead not the world's lead, not the lead of culture, not the lead of society. And in a way, this is almost like a a rehashing of God's purpose for Israel. It mirrors God's original intention for giving the law to Israel. And that is namely to set them apart and make them a light to the surrounding cultures. We read about this in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 3. It says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. And the Hebrew word for holy that is used, it literally means set apart. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were, um, that they acted in a holy manner 24-7 like they should have. It means that they were set apart. God chose them and separated them in the way that they acted, in the way that they behaved, in the morals that they followed, in order to set them apart from the surrounding cultures. Another example is Isaiah 42, verse 6. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So God's purpose for Israel was to set them apart morally and religiously so that they could be a light to the nations. And here's why. Because you can't be a light for the dark if all that surrounds you is darkness. If all that you allow yourself to be consumed with and conformed to is darkness, you don't even know what light is. And it's impossible for you to bring light to the dark if you're already inundated in that darkness. 
in the body of Christ, in the eyes of Paul as he's writing this, is that we're supposed to be physically in the world, but not of the world. We are not supposed to be the world. We're supposed to be in it in order to be a light to the world. Look, Israel lived amongst other cultures, but they were not those cultures. They were distinct in their values and beliefs, and when they abandoned what made them holy or set apart, it always led to death and destruction. I've been reading through Judges, um, and if I'm being completely honest with you, and maybe some of y'all sympathize with me, there are just some books of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament that are really hard to read because it's full of just all these foreign names that we're not used to saying or reading and all these different places that we're expected to know and know what they mean and know where they're located. But just on a first glance read, you just don't know what it means. But I've, I've been challenging myself to read through Judges because I know that there is important things within every book of the Bible that can help help us get a fuller picture of God and the plan that he has for his people. So if you read through Judges, you may notice this phrase, and it's mostly in the first 14 to 15 chapters. It's this phrase that keeps reoccurring, and it goes like this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So as you read throughout Judges, what you see is that Joshua just died. You had Moses, and then it went on to Joshua. Joshua led them. It was a good dude. But then he died, and Israel quickly fell away from the teachings that Moses and Joshua handed down through the Torah and through the law. And what you see is time and time again is that Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord. They would start um, inundating their beliefs and their culture and their actions with the surrounding cultures, these, these sinful people who are uh, worshiping pagan gods, sacrificing their children, doing really abhorrent things. And Israel was willingly being a part of that. And it's depicted as them doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And this phrase, from what I could see, was repeated seven different times throughout Judges. It possibly has a symbolic meaning. We know that the number seven is the, the number of completion. Maybe this was just the full completion of Israel time and time again, um, abandoning God and doing what they thought was right. But nevertheless, the repetition of this phrase that the author uses it should catch our attention because what we notice is that every single time the phrase is used that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, every single time that happens, they get handed over to their enemies. They get handed over to the very lifestyle that they were trying to pursue that they knew was evil, and every single time, death and destruction followed. So what the author is trying to tell us by the repetition is that, hey, when you abandon the holy status that God places upon you, death and destruction follow. When you conform to the world around you that God has already laid out instruction in a law and in an example in Christ to set you apart, when you conform to that world anyways, death and destruction always follows. So keeping this in mind, should illuminate the seriousness of Paul's command to not be conformed to the behaviors and the customs of this world. That's why he tells us in, the, in that very same verse to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 
That's an interesting phrase. To be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Paul says, okay, instead of conforming to the world, how about you be transformed? Renew your mind, be transformed, be something new. What's interesting about this phrase is that the Greek word for transformed is metamorpho. You may have heard like metamorphosis, stuff like that, but it's metamorpho, which means transfigured. Maybe you're tracking with me here. It means transfigured. What's another moment within our scriptures that we hear of someone being transfigured? Well, the only other time is when we read about the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. And this is super interesting because I wonder... I wonder if Paul is using this this uh, Greek word metamorpho. I wonder if he's using it intentionally because I'm sure there's many other words that he could have used to describe a change of the way that we think and the way that we operate. But he used the word that the only other times it was used was to specifically talk about Jesus being transfigured. I think there's another time in 1 Peter, but the the two major times was talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And I wonder if Paul expected his, his listeners to have that picture of Jesus being transfigured with, as Matthew says, the face shining like the sun and his garments becoming white as light. I wonder if Paul expected them to have that picture of Jesus in his radiant glory as a reminder to what we should be striving for, as a contrast to what it is we should be striving for instead of conforming to the world. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, remember how Jesus went up on a mountain? Which in and of itself is interesting, uh, because in ancient cosmology, the mountains were the dwelling place of the gods. That's another cool little rabbit hole you could go down. But it's like Paul saying, hey, remember how Jesus went up on that mountain? And remember how he was just blinding with pure light and glory. Remember how Jesus became transfigured? Well, I'm asking you to strive for that same purity. I'm asking you to be transfigured or transformed by the renewal of your mind. And how does that happen? It happens by changing how you think. Shifting your focus away from the things of this world. And if Paul was speaking directly to the Roman people, some of these things that they would have had to shift their focus away from would have been things like their pagan religions, their former gluttonous and sexually immoral lifestyles, their attitude towards others, their attitudes towards uh, the Jews, and the Jews' attitudes towards the Gentiles. Their previous beliefs about the purpose of the Torah and their previous beliefs about who Jesus was or who they thought he wasn't. And for moderns, things that we should shift our focus away from in the world would be things like mainstream entertainment, the obsession with celebrity and fame, political tribalism, selfishness, greed, gluttony, lust, These are all things that Paul expects us to no longer conform to, but to actively work to renew our mind so we could be transformed or transfigured. And by doing this, 
you enable the ability to fully seek out God, His Word, and His purpose. Paul says some beautiful things regarding this in his letter to the Ephesian church. Um, in chapter 5, verses 3, three through 8, he says this, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, here it is, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what Paul does in that excerpt of his letter to the Ephesians is Paul gives a pretty good example of what it means to conform to the world. Sexual immorality, impurity, foolish talk, crude joking, and obviously there's many more, but he's naming some of the more obvious ones. And he calls them away from those things. Why? Why does he call them away from those things? Because in Christ, they are the light in the Lord. And then he calls them, because they are light in the Lord, to walk as children of light. Here he's connecting ideas of light and its purity with Jesus, and also Jesus' transfiguration. During that transfiguration, it showed his pure power and holiness, and it symbolized him as the high priest. And with us, it enacts our purity in Christ and our newfound way of life by means of being a living sacrifice to bring light to the world. So not conforming to the world is not only for our sake individually, but it's for the sake of the world. It's so that the light of Jesus can shine in that dark place. And as Paul called us in Ephesians, he called us to walk as children of light because we are light in the Lord. And I really do think that, that we are supposed to look back to the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17 and see how he looked to the disciples. See his purity and, and, and his power. And we are supposed to mimic that and share that to the dark parts of the world. I really do think that's what Paul is saying. On to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Hmm. It appears that God assigns a measure of faith to individuals within the body of Christ. That's interesting. And to clarify... Faith here, the way that faith is being used, is not referring to saving faith. It's not referring to the faith that you have in Christ. Um, it, it refers to a, a trust or a confidence or some concordances have it as divine persuasion. That is given to a person by God in order to help execute the gifts that are given. And we see a list of these gifts in verse 6, but we'll get to that next week. Now, one thing that Paul points out, which we don't want to skip over, is who is the giver of this faith? 
Well, Paul tells us that it's God. God's the one that has assigned our measure of faith. And the reason this is important is that we recognize who gave us this measure of faith. So none of us can become proud or arrogant about our gifts. If we recognize that God is the one that supplied the measure of faith and the gifts that we have, nobody can go about boasting, talking about how great they are and and how much they have done because it's not about them. Our measure of faith has nothing to do with our own ability because it's purely from God. And because we recognize it's purely from God, that allows us to be humbled and realize that we're only doing what God has commissioned us to do. And I think this is where we can kind of get things messed up today, is that we tend to view certain gifts in higher esteem, with higher importance when it comes to the body of Christ. We view certain gifts as correlating to the fact that someone is more godly or that someone is a better Christian. Oftentimes it comes with pastors or leaders within the church. We uphold them in a far more important esteem, in a far more holier esteem than someone like a a volunteer or, or a teacher or someone who prays in private with someone. And I think we really do make a mistake when we do that. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 11. He's kind of laying out um, the foundations for how the the church should operate. And he, he says this, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now notice what Paul emphasizes in this list before shepherds. Now shepherds is otherwise translated as pastors. Um, But notice what he emphasizes before he even mentions the pastors and the teachers. He mentions the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. Evangelists are those who go out and share the gospel of Christ. Now that's interesting. Because in a sense, we are all supposed to go out and share the gospel of Christ. We're all meant to evangelize. And in the eyes of Paul and and in the word of God on how he has set up this structure, Paul believes that those who evangelize are a little bit higher on the list when it comes to importance than those of the pastors and the teachers. And and this isn't isn't some hierarchy saying that the other gifts and roles aren't important or aren't as important, but I'm pointing this out to say that if we only hold up pastors and and the leaders within the body of Christ as far more important, we're missing how even Paul the Apostle himself listed this, and it's that those who evangelize and share the gospel of Christ in this list come first. I heard a pastor say this once, and this, this phrase or this quote has stuck with me ever since, and it has been a huge help with how I view a lot of things. He said this in regards to uh, the purpose of the gospel and the purpose of pastors. He says, our job as pastors is to preach Jesus and be forgotten. Hmm. And I would even extend that to everybody. Our, Our role is to preach Jesus, make Jesus popular and famous, and for us to just simply be forgotten. 
That statement completely changed my mindset. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the worship leaders. It's not about any of us. It's not about our fame or our worthiness. The job that we are commissioned to do, whether you're just a normal church attendee or you're a volunteer or you're a pastor or you don't attend church, no matter what it is, our job is to make Jesus famous, to preach the gospel and to be forgotten. Paul also expects us to recognize with, as he calls it, sober judgment, to recognize the measure of faith that God has given us. And we want to recognize this not so we can elevate ourselves because we have a a gift that's more popular or that more people flock to, but he wants us to recognize the measure of faith with sober judgment so that we can use the gift to its fullest to illuminate Jesus and not ourselves. On to verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So Paul highlights the differences in ability and function of the body of Christ. And this is where we get to the diversity that Paul talks about, because this body, this body of Christ, is so diverse culturally and ethnically. Think about who Paul is talking to in this letter. He's talking to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, both ethnically different, culturally different. They looked different. They sounded different. At one point, uh, they believed different. But Paul sees this diversity not as a weakness, but as a strength, a strength that allows the gospel to be amplified and a strength that allows the people themselves to be strengthened. One example I always give is this. Um, When it comes to my personal life, my quote-unquote measure of faith or my function in the body of Christ uh, would be teaching or public speaking or doing things like a podcast or getting in front of the camera. I absolutely love to do this. I love to teach this stuff. Uh, I feel like I have a knack for it. I could be wrong, but that's just, it feels like I have a knack for it. I love speaking on camera. I love to speak on stage. I've spoken to crowds as large as 14,000 people at one time, and I'm not bragging. Um, Trust me, I'm not. I'm just telling you, like, this is my function. However many people I end up reaching, whether it's one or 100, that doesn't matter. Um, This is just what God has given me the ability to do these things with relative ease and comfort. But if I'm being honest with you, um, this this gift or this function that God has assigned me, it's not enough. It's not enough to reach and appeal to the full body of Christ. Not everybody's going to like the way that I present God's word. Not everyone's going to like the way that I go through scripture. Not everyone's going to like listening to a podcast or listening or watching a video. Not many people are going to like uh, listening for a 30-minute to an hour-long podcast. That's not for everybody. Some people may not like the way I sound, may not like the way I speak. They may like somebody else who seems more relatable to them. Uh, Some people... Some people are going to be more willing to receive, learn, and understand uh, what God is trying to show them on an individual one-on-one basis instead of 
going to a podcast to listen to someone else who they don't personally know. So this function that God has given me cannot complete the full body of Christ. It requires far greater gifts, far more diverse gifts and abilities throughout the whole body of Christ to be able to appeal and reach the diverse group of people that God loves. But if I'm also being honest, I at times I envy those other gifts. I envy the other gifts that, that God has given to other people. Hear me out because I know it may sound silly, but I can speak in front of thousands of people on stage. I've done it many, many times. I can do that with everyone looking at me, not having a script or nothing, and I can go for 40 minutes. I can do that with full confidence. I absolutely love it. And you may think, wow, that's so cool. But I envy the people who have the gift to be able to have a one-on-one intimate and meaningful conversation with someone else. Some people don't think that's a gift. Some people look at others on stage and and they seem so joyful and, and boisterous and they have the crowds laughing and cheering and it seems like that's the place to be. But at least for me, although I love being in that that atmosphere, there's nothing more that I crave than to be comfortable and have a one-on-one personable conversation with someone. But that's just not my gift. I struggle with it. It doesn't come natural to me. That That's a gift that someone like my wife has. People come to my wife all the time and, and just confide in her and talk with her. And she can have a conversation with a stranger and have it for hours. And it's it has substance and it has purpose and she loves it. But when it comes to me, I I can't do it. I just don't have that ability. That's not my measure of faith. And this is a perfect example of the necessity of a diverse set of gifts and a diverse set of people who have experienced so many different things and who come from so many different cultures and backgrounds. And this is why Paul warns the people in Rome and also us to not place ourselves higher than we should because of a measure of faith that we have that God hasn't given someone else. Because one gift is not more valuable than the other. All the gifts are absolutely necessary to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is diverse, and it's not by accident. It is done intentionally. God created a diverse group of people with diverse problems and solutions and experiences so that we all individually are able to go out and evangelize and preach the gospel to many different people in many different situations with many different worldviews. This isn't a one-size-fits-all. And that's why God has fashioned us in all different shapes and sizes and abilities and purposes. 